Well, thank you so much, Rick. This is your last Sunday off, I think. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. Please join me in prayer. Wonderful Father in heaven, we want to thank you for the enormous privilege you give us to gather together once again today in the mighty name of Jesus. We know that whenever we do, wherever we are, when your people, your daughters and sons, come together in that name, they meet with the King of kings and Lord of lords. Come now, O God in heaven, we pray, and speak with us as we speak with one another in Jesus' name. Come, we pray, and visit with us as we visit with one another through the service and, and afterwards. Oh, come, we pray, Heavenly Father, and meet us as your children. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So, Rick and Molly and family, welcome back. It's really, really, really great to have you. Let me be perfectly frank. I'd much rather listen to you today than to me. And they're going to feel so too. Yet I count it a privilege to give you one more Sunday of, of holiday. It's, a, it's an honor to, uh, to oblige and join you, join you today at the pulpit. As Rick mentioned, I'm a retired Lutheran clergyman, which explains in one whack both the black shirt and the white hair. For the past 20 years, I have served as director of a little Lutheran missionary community. We call it World Mission Prayer League. You can Google it later if you like. Insiders know it as WIMPL, W-M-P-L. It was founded in Minneapolis in 1891. I've often thought that it's something like the functional equivalent of a Roman Catholic missionary order within the Lutheran family of churches. It's a community committed to prayer. We pray every day, many times a day. It's a community committed to simplicity and community and gospel outreach and service. We're thousands of members, hundreds of full-time missionaries. We're schools and hospitals, projects large and small in dozens of countries, among scores of unreached people groups. Our mother house, you might say, is just down by Loring Park and on the west side of, of downtown Minneapolis, World Mission Prayer League. Cindy and I have been honored to... Uh, to worship with you since our retirement in the month of January. Thank you for your welcome. You will have noticed, some of you, I suppose, that we're kind of chummy with some of your established members, Pastor Graham and Joel Fenton. It's because we're, like, related. Uh, our daughter is married to their son, and uh, we've, we've uh, since come to love each other like family. So that's why we always sit together over there. So once again today, we gather around the Word of God. You know, Martin Luther is one of my heroes, and he said one time, the Word of God is alive. It has feet, and it runs after you. It has hands, and it lays hold of you. And when it has gotten hold, sometimes it will transform your life. May it be so for us today. Today we want to visit uh, the home of Mary and Martha. I'd like to live in that text with you for a while this morning. Mary and Martha, in, uh, who live in Bethany, just, just uh, east of Jerusalem by about two kilometers. If you've ever visited the Holy Land, you're likely to have visited this place, Bethany. I love this passage. I always have. It's another ordinary passage, an ordinary time filled with the ordinary characters of our lives doing their very ordinary things. You're going to recognize them 
Maybe you'll, uh, you'll see yourself in them. Here we have Mary. She sits at the Lord's feet and listens to his teaching. She stands out for her very obvious spirituality. If you have known people like this, I think. I remember in our own community a brother named John. He was as quirky and uh, spiritual as anyone I've ever known. He had the fame in our community of loving Jesus. The man was just in love with Jesus. For a long while, he would come at my house every day, actually, when we lived in South America, at 5 a.m. to haul me off to prayers. That didn't come so naturally to me, actually. But uh, it was because John loved Jesus and wanted to start his day with him. John was hopeless when it came to cleaning the gutters. You could not ask him to do that. But in prayer and in caring for souls in the work of evangelism, you could not find a better. He was a merry type individual. And here we have Martha. She is busy, busy with so many things to the point of dis- distraction. She stands out for her activism. A characteristic of Martha types is that they probably will let you know about their busyness too. That's it. And that's what we find in this text. You've known people like this too. I remember a sister named Fran in our little community. As practical and activist as almost anyone I have ever known in my life. She was a farm girl. She knew how, she knew cows and how to milk them. She knew carpentry and how to fix a barn door. She knew architecture and structural engineering and accounting. And kind of natively, without studying those things, Fran, she built a hospital in Kathmandu. (laughs) I mean, like, not single-handedly. Yet she was, without doubt, one of the main motors behind behind a big hospital that still stands. If you walk through the streets of Kathmandu today and visit the neighborhood of Patan, you'll find one of the biggest mission hospitals in the place. And Fran was like a motor behind this hospital. We didn't ask Fran so very often to lead prayers. She, we didn't, uh, she didn't, uh, she wasn't so good at, you know, like leading worship. But in getting things done, you could not find better. She was a Martha type. Richard Kipling wrote a poem about this sort of individual. It's called The Sons of Martha in 1907. You can look it up later. It's a cool poem. He wrote it, and it's still used today, I think, from time to time in the graduation of, like, architect classes or or engineering classes and so on. These are the folk that make the trains run on time. It is in their care, Kipling says, that the gear engages. It is in their care that the switches lock. You want that kind of people on trains. Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin and Michael Collins were sons of Martha. Martha types make the world go round and they send rockets to the moon. And then you have Jesus in our text for today who steps into the story with grace and ease and wit and good news. You're going to identify with one or another of these sisters, I'll bet. I personally identify with Martha. Let me share with you uh, three uh, observations uh, emerging for me from this text uh, that have helped me to understand it, and maybe they'll help you too. 
The first is, a, I think, it's way obvious, and, uh, and yet it's often overlooked, and it's not very often commented uh, when, you, when you read this text. It's so simple, and yet it's, so, it's just so absolutely basic in understanding this text, I do believe. And it runs something like this. Mary and Martha are sisters. They live together. They're family. They've known one another their whole lives long. They complement one another. They're not some kind of like rivals. They're two sides of the same coin. In Catholic and Lutheran and Anglican calendars, I want you to know, if you're the type that observes that sort of thing, that Saints Mary and Martha and Lazarus, their brother, are all feasted on the same day. It comes next week. These ladies are on the same team. This passage doesn't happen without both of them. It's Martha who comes to know that Jesus is in town. It's Martha who steps out to invite him to stop by. Jesus entered a village, we read in verse 38, and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her home. Mary isn't mentioned. Jesus doesn't even appear at the door, and this passage doesn't even get underway unless practical Martha invites him. It's Martha who sets out a bowl to wash his feet and produces a cushion for him to sit on, who sets the table and prepares the meal. The word used to describe these activities, if you look it up sometime in a commentary, is a diakonia. It's a word that you're going to probably recognize. It's the word from which we derive in English deacon. And all the deacon-like things that the church does, all the things that make the trains run on time, good things, that's what, uh, that's what Martha was about. She was like a deacon par excellence. And Jesus doesn't uh, settle down to teach unless Mary, at some point, settles down to listen. Verse 39, Martha had a sister named Mary who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. Sometimes uh, we make this passage somehow binary. Maybe you've heard it preached that way sometimes. Like you're either going to be a Martha or you're going to be a Mary. And for my money, you should be a Mary. I mean, that's the way we preach it sometimes. We use the passage sometimes to shame the Martha types among us or to extol the quiet Marys. But I, in my mind, this is more than the passage can bear. These ladies are sisters. They're on the same team. Martin Luther uh, had a kind of an earthy way of describing spiritual realities. He liked to say that God is at work in the world with both hands and right up to his elbows. By his left hand, Luther would say, God is at work setting tables and washing the dishes and cleaning the gutters and sweeping the floors. God. God is at work building communities and working justice and feeding the hungry and serving the poor. It doesn't happen randomly. God stands behind this. God is at work to heal bodies and teach children and plant crops and drive trucks and make sure the bagels arrive fresh at your local 7-Eleven. He runs businesses. God does this. Martha-like things. These are the work of God. Evelyn Underhill wrote a cool book some years ago called The School of Charity. She said, Christianity is a religion which concerns us as we are here and now, creatures of body and soul. 
We do not follow the footsteps of his most holy life by the exercise of a trained religious imagination. A trained religious imagination, that's not the ideal. But by treading the firm, rough earth uphill and down dale. By his right hand, Luther would say, God is at work in, you know, you might say, Mary-like things. Speaking and teaching and hearing the word of God. Working faith, kneading faith into the lump of our hearts by the power of the gospel and the miracle of the sacrament. These two are the work of God. The left hand and the right hand, Luther always insisted, and you know, I, I will insist too, they work together. It's a whole piece. It's a whole cloth. And God is at work in both of them. Restoration's value statement, to my mind, kind of gets this really right. We have contemplation and mission. I remember when Molly preached about this about a year ago, and it uh, kind of brought tears to my eyes. It's so good. Contemplation and mission. They belong side by side, and the value that holds them together is wholeness. <laughs> yeah. So this passage is about sister work, family work. We make a mistake if we set these two sisters, you know, like against each other. There are Martha types and Mary types working side by side, and Jesus is out to meet them both. Sometimes we preach the word of God. Rick is going to be at it. He's going to be at it again next Sunday, I think. Sometimes we also clean the gutters. All right, there we go. Good for you. <laughs> so here's the second truth I'd like to mention. There is a good portion to choose. And it's a choice that's presented to both these sisters. There's a choice to make. A good portion. The good portion is a choice to make. We read in verse 42, one thing is necessary, Jesus said. Mary has chosen the good portion. For centuries, uh, commentators have wondered about this uh, kind of unusual image. One thing, choosing the good portion. Uh, Jesus must have taught that afternoon for many hours and uh, probably had a meal. And yet this is the only bit that survives in Luke chapter 10. One thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion. Some commentators have supposed that Jesus was referring to the sort of meal he was going to be served that afternoon. Mary wanted to set out, you know, like the whole nine yards, all five courses. And Jesus is saying, okay, Mary, take it easy. One course is going to be enough for me. I, I'm fine with bread. That's okay. But the teaching functions at a deeper level, too. The verb is um, eklegomai. That's not a verb that you might have come across before, but you know this verb in English. It's the word from which we get election in English, eklegomai. You're presented with a ballot of possibilities, and you're invited to make a choice, an election, a choice. And your election matters, as it is said uh, sometimes hauntingly in these last few years. Elections have consequences, right? The verb means, in fact, to choose in a consequential sort of way. We choose from among, among options an alternative together with its consequences. The direct object in this uh, in this teaching is to choose ho agathos meris, the good part or the good portion. Agathos means uh, simply good, or useful, happy, excellent. Meris means part or portion. So there's a good portion to choose, something that's happy, something that's useful. It is one thing we find. 
So what is it? This is a choice that has nothing to do with activities. It's not a choice between like setting the table or sitting around. That's not, that's not the issue. This is a choice that has to do with centers. It has to do with the focus of our faith and our attention. Mary simply chooses Jesus. She fixes her attention on Jesus. The operative word is logos. That's what she fixes her attention on. It's another biblical word that you've heard of. Mary centers her heart upon the logos, upon God with us. She nestles at his feet. She listens to his word. She chooses. She elects his word of grace, his promises and teaching above the many alternatives vying for her attention that afternoon. This one good thing, this good portion. It's not that Jesus doesn't care about setting the table and doing the dishes. <laughs> he does. Setting the table and doing the dishes are among the many, many things that make the world go round. In my house, we do it almost every day. Uh, one of us does, at least. Jesus is concerned about the center that these things revolve around. If you're going to serve, what will be the center of your serving? If you pray, if you contemplate, what's going to be the center of your contemplation? And it's a choice that's given to both the sisters that afternoon. It runs something like this. Take your quiet, merry self, your contemplative self, and give it to Jesus. Take your driven Martha self, your activist self, and give it to Jesus. In Jesus, we discover the redeeming love of God for us, the one thing, this good portion. And in the bargain, everything else about our lives is transformed. Our lives get a new center, and our service gets new fuel. There, Then we may find a, the good portion in the prayer closet and in the and in the dusty garage as we try to as we change oil on our car. Then we find the good portion behind the altar and while cleaning the gutters or working in the garden. Then we find the better part in any and all of these activities all throughout our lives. We find Jesus presented in these things, at work in these things, in the center of life and all things, and by his grace he makes them all new. And here in conclusion is a third, a final observation I want to share with you today. It's not as long as the other two. Jesus is staying for supper. Yeah, okay, so there you've got Mary and Martha, their sisters, and there you've got, uh, there you've got uh, their way of, their way of operating. I mean, they, they need to choose to focus on Jesus. And Jesus stays for supper. Commentators are agreed that Jesus must have remained for a meal that afternoon in Bethany. It's stated explicitly in John chapter 12, a parallel to this passage. So let this sink in for a minute. Jesus isn't off in a huff because Martha is so very like Martha. And Jesus isn't offended because Mary is so very like Mary. He isn't put off because the table isn't set. Jesus speaks tenderly to Martha with her Martha-like personality. If he reproves her, it's a very gentle reproof. Jesus speaks tenderly to Mary, too, with her Mary-like personality. So they talk that afternoon, they pray, maybe they sing a song, I'll bet they do, they share a meal, they laugh a little, I think. They enjoy one another's friendship. 
I am here now, Jesus says. I am not going away, he says. I'm going to stay for supper. Jesus is there for both of these sisters by grace, through faith. And he's going to be there for Brother Lazarus when he shows up too. Jesus is here for you, just as he is here for you today. Even today. This could be said, Jesus is staying for supper. (laughs) In a few moments, Rick is going to set the table, and you're going to see how this works for us just so many years later. You're going to see Martha types. Maybe it's going to be some of you. Welcome at the table of the Lord. You're going to see Mary types. You're going to see activist types and contemplatives invited to the table side by side. People, people who know how to slackline. <laughs> and others who have no idea what that might be. Because there is, after all, only one thing needful. And he is here. He's going to stay for a meal. And he is eager to meet you. Amen. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. May it be for us today and throughout the day. May it have legs and just run after us. May it have hands and lay hold of us, we pray. We pray, Heavenly Father, that you would come to our encounter through this, your word. We want to come with our Martha-ness and our Mary-ness, and we want to meet Jesus. Oh, God in heaven, we bless you. Bless you. We bless you, Heavenly Father. Come and meet with us now, we ask you. In Jesus' wonderful name, amen. We're going to continue with reciting the Nicene Creed. It's found on page 10 in your bulletins. Please stand.